0: So, after a last night's talk about death, some of you might have been wondering what is she going to talk about tonight and Actually, I was wondering the same thing, <laughs> so it's kind of hard to know where to go from that, but in some ways, yesterday was a a little bit of a pivot point in the arc of the development of this retreat, so You'll see where this is going, but last night I talked about how um, all of the development of insight practice rests on our capacity to notice change, to recognize the arising and passing away of experiences on both the micro and the macro level. And it rests on our ability to stay steady with that change not holding on to what's pleasant, and not resisting what's unpleasant. And strangely enough, in that non-resistance, in that non-reactivity, if we look at the bigger picture of the development of our practice, we'll probably see there's a shift in the balance overall of pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So whether you've been meditating for a couple of years or several decades, the general movement over that time, I think it's fair to say, is from struggle towards ease. So I want to emphasize the general movement. And also that these shifts in our practice, just like the changing seasons, might seem at times to be so incremental as to be invisible on a daily basis. But if we step back and look at the bigger picture, I'm confident that every one of you can recognize significant changes in how we relate to ourselves, to each other and to the world. So that's broadly the theme of what I'd like to talk about tonight. The natural arc of the practice that moves from dukkha or suffering to the, towards sukkha, to pleasantness, to ease, and beyond that, and beyond that to wholeness and freedom. And you might even have noticed a similar trajectory over the relatively short arc of this retreat. So again if you think back to the first couple of days of the retreat I'm guessing most of you were working with one or more of the hindrances. Is that fair to say? Anybody not experiencing any hindrances on the first day? Not really? Maybe? So usually in uh, the first few days of the retreat that's seems to be what's most predominant in our experience. But just in speaking with each of you in the individual meetings over the last few days, it's clear that the strength of the hindrances has weakened. And now there's more space for skillful mind states to start to be known. So tonight I want to explore this movement from dukkha to sukha in a bit more detail starting with sukha being the Pali word for well-being and happiness, in other words, the opposite of dukkha. And in this context, I'm going to be using the word sukkha as a shorthand for all kinds of skillful qualities of heart and mind. So, for example, the four Brahma qualities that we've been exploring in the afternoons, <coughs> kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. There's also the seven factors of awakening which all of the techniques in the Satipatthana Sutta culminate in. Those skillful qualities we can experience on retreat of mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi and equanimity. And then there's also the ten parami, those skillful qualities of heart and mind that particularly get developed in daily life, that need the kind of grist of daily life to be strengthened. These are generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, metta, and equanimity. You can see there's some overlap in many of those lists. And I'm just using them to highlight that there are many, many skillful qualities. And what they all have in common is that they're all experienced as pleasant. Now, that pleasantness might be quite subtle at times. But if we really pay attention, we can notice that there's a quality of sukha, of well-being or happiness alongside the generosity or the patience or the equanimity or whatever it is that we're recognizing. So I think it's fair to say, just again, based on the individual meetings that I've been having with you, that every one of us here is making this shift from dukkha in the direction of sukha, And it's good not just to acknowledge this, but to appreciate it and even celebrate it to let it in and take joy in what we're doing here because it's so common in our society to always see where we don't measure up, where we're not getting it right and so on. So to really let in when things are going well is quite a powerful skill to develop. So even though intellectually we might understand that sukha or happiness, ease and freedom are the goals of this path, there's often some pretty deep societal and individual conditioning that gets in the way of us accessing that sukha. This was definitely true in my own practice experience, and I've also encountered it in working with different students around the world. So I'd like to share a few ways that I've seen this conditioning, these deep sankharas or mental formations, get in the way of this shift from dukkha to sukha. The first is the biological inbuilt negativity bias that I've mentioned a few times now, that as a species we're hardwired to pay more attention to what's unpleasant than what's pleasant because what's unpleasant has the potential to uh, threaten our lives, whereas pleasant experiences are mostly benign and safe. So they just don't grab our attention in the same way. And then on top of that basic biological ne- negativity bias, we often add a whole pile of social conditioning and cultural conditioning, So, for example, dominant Western mainstream culture tends to put a lot of emphasis on individualism and materialism. And there's a lot of pressure to have, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, to become someone special. And because of this conditioning, it's very common that we unconsciously turn all of our Dharma practice into a giant self-improvement project. If I can just get rid of this habit or become more like that person or get closer to my mythical uh, misunderstanding of nibbana, then, then I'll be okay. But when we bring that kind of self-centered striving mentality to the practice, we don't see that underneath it is a form of aversion which only compounds the dukkha, the suffering. So we shouldn't underestimate the power of this conditioning. If we don't see through it, it can drive us relentlessly and leave us feeling deeply inadequate. It traps us in a very binary attitude to the practice where we just think in terms of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure And then we bring that whole binary mentality. We bring that whole binary mentality to our dharma practice. We're desperate to get it right and terrified of getting it wrong, worried about wasting our time and doing everything we can to at least look like an accomplished meditator. So about a month ago now, I did a a six-week class series in Australia for people in Sydney in the Blue Mountains, and it was the theme was transforming fear into fearlessness. So in the first uh, meeting of the class, to, to uh, ease our way in, I invited people just to do a written exercise to start to write down some common areas of daily life where they tended to experience anxiety or fear. And then to do the same thing in terms of their dharma practice. And so we ended up with a big bowl of notes, a bit like this. And I took them home and I typed them all up. And it was painful. (laughs) You can probably guess intellectually the kind of themes that came up. But what really stood out for me was how often the phrase not good enough came up. Just that phrase itself was there about 12 times with exactly those words and then there were other variations on that theme not smart enough not getting it too stupid should be doing better haven't made enough progress etc 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 so there were between the two classes about 45 people in that class and it was just pretty much a litany of inadequacy so i use that as an example just to give us a sense of how pervasive this conditioning is. And for me, how tragic it is that every person is carrying some sense that they're uniquely neurotic, defective, inadequate, and everybody else is fine. But if we really look and listen and pay attention, everyone in that class was sharing some similar, some variation on that theme. So that's partly why I try to emphasize exploring and enjoying to encourage people to try and step out of this pervasive idea of right and wrong and good and bad and so on. So being willing to experiment, to try things out, to listen to our own experience, to trust it, to even enjoy it, is really a powerful way of freeing ourselves from this kind of tyranny of constantly judging and assessing and criticizing and condemning. So paradoxically, I'm very serious about the need for lightness. And there's a caveat, though. This invitation to explore and enjoy doesn't mean we abandon any kind of goal. Instead, we learn to discern the difference between aspiration and expectation. So aspiration is similar to what we did on uh, Saturday night, just setting an intention to, wa- to move towards a healthy and skillful goal, whereas an expectation hardens that aspiration into a more will-driven grasping for results. And as you've probably noticed in your own practice, in the quietness and stillness of retreat, we can more easily connect with a deeper sense of purpose. And beautiful aspirations quite naturally bubble up into awareness. But what often happens after that is that the intellect latches onto that aspiration and starts to impose its own agenda on it. And the aspiration morphs into an expectation that then torments us and reinforces all those same old stories about not being good enough that I was just describing. Because at times the distinction between aspiration and expectation can be subtle, in my own practice I found it helpful to pay close attention to a couple of areas that can reveal the difference. One is the amount and the type of chatter in the mind. If there are a lot of I-based thoughts creeping into my practice, that's often a sign that my aspiration has started to congeal into an expectation. I want this to happen. I don't want that to happen. I should be experiencing this by now. I shouldn't be experiencing that. Why aren't I letting go of this? When am I going to get that? Haven't I got to Z yet? And so there's all this proliferation of different kinds of thoughts. And then you might notice that the sense of self is at the center of all of that. So rather than feeding that proliferative thinking, seeing if we can step out of it and simply recognize, oh, wanting being known taking that first-person pronoun out of it like we were doing in the contemplation the other day. Wanting being known. Resistance being known. Oh, self-judgment is like this. Comparing mind is like this. Moment of spaciousness being known, and so on. So noticing the proliferation of I-based thinking. And then the other area to pay attention to is the body, and the physical sensations in the body. So if we bring mindfulness to the effect on the body of the proliferating eye-based thoughts, we often recognize a subtle or perhaps not so subtle tension, perhaps a slight clenching of the jaw or the tightening of the small muscles around the eyes or a sense of contraction in the belly. So that tightening into expectation feels very different energetically than we just have an inspiration or orientation towards experiencing more sukha. And on one level it's obvious that if we're getting all tense and tight in our quest to experience more ease and happiness then we might not be going about it in quite the right way. So this is how Gil Fransdal describes this process of distinguishing between aspiration and expectation. He says, The sensitivity and awareness that come from mindfulness practice support the discovery of our healthy desires and aspirations. Mindfulness not only helps us get in touch with our aspirations, but it helps prevent aspirations from becoming craving. Even though what we might want is healthy and appropriate, if we're not careful, this desire can manifest as craving. Noticing the physical and mental tension, the pressure and the uneasiness that comes with craving makes it easier to distinguish aspiration from craving. One way aspiration becomes craving is through expectation. At its best, Aspiration has an openness to possibility without a need for anything to happen. This doesn't mean that we don't act on our aspirations, but that we we don't cling to their success. There is something satisfying and wonderful in a healthy aspiration that is not dependent on outcome. So you can hear in that quote that there's a balance between setting a clear intention and holding it lightly. We need to really refine our energy or effort so as not to overshoot the mark. And for many people, one of the most challenging aspects of meditation practice is the paradox that the deepest freedom comes from letting go and letting be, not from doing. But because of our cultural conditioning to always be doing, 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 it's easy to miss those more refined states of calm and quiet and tranquility. We're so used to struggling with the hindrances that when they do eventually quieten down, we might think that there's nothing happening. And we try to metaphorically push the river instead of settling back and refining our mindfulness to meet these more refined states of heart and mind. So as we start to orient more to the third noble truth, which is the end of dukkha and the consequent experience of sukha, it can reveal many different layers of conditioning about ourselves and our dharma practice. And one very common and unseen assumption is that dharma practice or any kind of spiritual practice is supposed to be hard work. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's supposed to be difficult. It's even supposed to be painful. And if it's not those things, if it's neutral or perhaps even pleasant, then we must be doing something wrong. We're not working hard enough. We're not going deep enough. We're not seeing clearly enough. And that underlying assumption often results in a lot of unconscious resistance even to the suggestion that joy and enjoyment might be a necessary part of the practice. So just an invitation for you to notice during this talk any views or beliefs that might be coming up for you about what real Dharma practice is supposed to look like or feel like. So one very common unconscious attitude that gets in the way of experiencing sukha is that actually feeling happiness, feeling joy, requires a certain openness, even vulnerability. It can be a surprising act of courage to let ourselves open to feel ease and happiness and peace, knowing that they're impermanent and that they will end, they will change. So again, uh, coming back to the work of Brene Brown, the research professor I mentioned the other night, she spent 16 years so far studying courage and vulnerability and empathy and shame. And during the course of all that research, she discovered a strong link between the capacity to feel vulnerable and the ability to feel joy. So in an interview, she says... When we when we wake up every morning and armor up and say, I'm not going to let myself be hurt. I'm not going to let myself be seen. I'm not going to let myself be emotionally wrung out. I'm going to protect my vulnerability. When we lose that capacity for vulnerability, joy becomes foreboding. Because in those moments where we feel joy, the first thing we think is, "Uh uh-oh, you will not blindside me, vulnerability. I will beat you to the punch. I'm going to stand here and squander this incredible moment with my child or my partner or this incredible moment about my promotion, and I'm going to imagine the worst-case scenario. That way, if it happens, it will hurt less. Which is why, she says, it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we do. So it's not surprising then that many of us have an unconscious fear of happiness that we can bring with us into the meditation practice. And unfortunately, this attitude is sometimes inadvertently reinforced by the way the Buddha's teachings are presented. It is true that the Buddha warned us over and over again not to get attached to sense pleasures. But what isn't emphasized so much is his instruction to cultivate skillful mental states of ease and happiness and peace instead. So in my own case, I developed an unconscious belief that any type of pleasant experience was inherently wrong or bad. And I was so worried about getting attached to it, getting attached to enjoyment, that for a while I didn't allow myself to feel any kind of pleasure at all. I didn't recognize that I was afraid of it, and I'd unconsciously cultivated a form of wrong view, the wrong view that pleasant experience leads automatically to attachment. And as a defense against that misunderstanding I developed a kind of attachment to non-attachment. So I tried to disconnect from pleasant experience and I felt guilty if I'd accidentally experienced any. So perhaps some of you may have been through this phase of practice yourself and so you'll know that it's not very sustainable because it makes the practice dry, even painful. And it takes more and more effort to keep it going. So although at that time I was vaguely aware that my practice was becoming more and more of a struggle, I convinced myself that I was practicing, quote, right effort. Right effort being one of the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And back then, whenever I heard this term, right effort, I just unconsciously assume it meant blood, sweat and tears because I was focusing just on the effort part and completely missing the right part. So I was fortunate to eventually find the Buddha's definition of what he actually meant by right effort and to discover that it was a lot more nuanced than I'd assumed. So when the Buddha is asked to talk about or to define right effort, he talks about it in terms of four distinct aspects. So the first aspect of effort is to restrain the arising of unarisen, unwholesome mental states, which is a complicated way of saying to try to prevent unskillful mind states from coming up in the first place. So we do what we can to not allow the hindrances to come in. But the Buddha was also a realist. He knew there will be times when, in spite of our efforts, we do fall into some kind of unskillful state. So the second effort is to abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen. That's the practice we were doing with Bella in relation to the hindrances, seeing how to help the hindrances release. So the sequence of these four efforts is significant because the first two are about clearing out the afflictive states. And then almost literally there's more room in the heart and the mind for skillful states to arise. So then the third effort is to develop unarisen, wholesome mental states, those skillful mental qualities that I listed earlier. And then the fourth great effort... We learn how to incline the heart and mind in the direction of these states and to stay there for longer. So the fourth effort is to maintain, is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So again, just to caution, this isn't an invitation to cling to pleasant states that have arisen because then we're starting to bring in the unskillful energy of greed. But the task is to keep establishing the mind in skillful states and doing what we can to maintain them so that over time they naturally become more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So again, we might see that over time there is this natural progression that starts with the effort to deal with unskillful mental states and then as we become more successful at this, the balance of our practice shifts. Skillful mental states naturally become more predominant and then we start to learn how to stay with them, abide in them, help them stick around. So how might we support and encourage these skillful states? The other night when I spoke about dukkha, I suggested that cultivating compassion and particularly self-compassion is a very powerful resource to help us navigate suffering more skillfully. And in a similar way, there is one particular Brahmavihara practice that can really help in the cultivation of skillful states. And that's the Brahmavihara of mudita, or appreciative joy, sympathetic joy. So, in this brief exploration that we've been doing so far of the Brahmavihara states, I mentioned that they begin with metta, or kindness. And when metta, or kindness, turns towards suffering, it flowers as karuna, or compassion, which is what we were cultivating this afternoon. So I think of compassion as being the love child of metta and dukkha. And in a similar way, when metta or kindness turns towards what's going well, turns towards success, it flowers as mudita, appreciative joy. So mudita is the love child of metta and sukha. So mudita is the heart's capacity to feel happiness, to feel joy, to feel gladness, with an emphasis on the capacity to feel gladness for somebody else's happiness. So it also includes flavors of appreciation and gratitude, and it can be a very uplifting and inspiring quality, though it also has what we might think of it as its shadow side too. So Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs are two English Dharma teachers who have put together a description of all four of these Brahma Vihara qualities as different flavors of love. And they say for Mudita that Mudita is the love that celebrates and it's an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, then equanimity brings the heart back into balance. So mudita then is the love that celebrates, and traditionally, as I said, it's a celebration of other people's happiness and good fortune. And although this at first might seem counterintuitive, as we experiment with this practice, we can discover that it actually increases our own happiness as well. So there's a well-known quote from the Tibetan master Shantideva that makes this point beautifully. He says, All the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come from wanting pleasure for oneself. So this capacity to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. When we are able to activate this quality, it re- reduces our sense of separateness and our sense of lack. We can feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. And these are all skillful states that support the development of wisdom. They help us understand the truth of interconnectedness, and anatta, or not-self. Because when we stop taking our problems quite so personally, we recognize that all beings want to be happy, just as we do. And Mudita can also act as a powerful catalyst for the awakening factor of rapture or joy to arise. So in this way, it directly supports the development of insight. So how do we actually cultivate mudita as a meditation practice? Well, traditionally it's done similarly to metta practice through silently reciting phrases that cultivate the state of joy in relation to different categories of people. And some of the traditional phrases were to just recite things, may your happiness and joy continue. May your happiness not leave you. And your happiness continue to grow. For myself, I didn't find those phrases particularly satisfactory, so I came up with some of my own. But just to say that for some people, even the word joy can feel like a stretch, just not part of my emotional repertoire or capacity. So... You can, I'll use, I won't translate the word mudita, you can just put in whatever word is accessible for you. Perhaps gladness or appreciation or lightness. So mudita doesn't have to be some kind of big ecstatic bliss state. It can be very light and fleeting and subtle. And we can start to help incline the heart and mind in that direction by consciously orienting to aspects of our lives that we can appreciate in a very immediate way. So that's partly why over these last few days I've been inviting you to notice pleasant feeling tone, pleasant experiences, particularly in the body. Not grasping after them, not pushing them away, but just allowing any natural sense of appreciation to arise. So sometimes when I've explored mudita with people on previous retreats, I've asked them to share with me anything they experience about their experience, anything they appreciate about their experience of being on retreat. And so I've been compiling a list of different uh, mudita moments from previous retreats. It's a kind of a crowdsourcing of mudita that perhaps you might contribute to in a few minutes. But first I'll just read you what previous people have come up with. Appreciating being alive, healthy, with upright mind, surrounded by friends, enjoying ease and freedom. Appreciating all the efforts of the cooks and staff who are taking such good care of us. So, so grateful for the opportunity to practice the Dharma in such a beautiful, nurturing environment. Appreciating receiving very good guidance and support for my practice. Appreciating my body walking without pain. Hearing the chorus of tuis outside the meditation hall every morning. Warm sun coming through the window. The feeling of hot water on my skin when taking a shower. The taste of the delicious food at lunch. Seeing small rainbows in the steam rising from my cup of hot tea. The warmth of my hot water bottle at night. Complete non-busyness. Time away from my family. So those are a few examples that some of you might resonate with. But Let's just take a moment now in silence, just for a moment or two, to see if there are some aspects of your experience, perhaps even right now, that bring up this quality of appreciation, of gratitude, of happiness. Anybody have anything they're willing to contribute to this crowdsourcing? Very simple. Kim? Being able to go and have a long communication with a tree without thinking that anybody who sees me thinks I'm mad. (laughs) Being able to have a long communication with a tree, knowing that anybody who sees you won't think that you're mad. Beautiful. Thank you, David. Mmm, the joy of dawn. Yes, savoring the joy of dawn and the joy of sunset. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, Uh, The silhouette of the moon in the morning. uh Ah. Ah. Clear, clear sky. Yes. The the silhouette of the moon through the punga trees in the morning and the clear, clear sky. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Laura? Being in an atmosphere of kindness, people motivated by kindness. Lovely, thank you. Margie. The wonder of the stars. Yeah. The the wonder of the stars in the night sky. Yeah. There's not so much light pollution here. Thank you. Marisha. Communing without speaking. Communing without speaking. Lovely. Miriam. I really appreciate um, seeing you year after year and kind of benefiting from seeing your ease, your increasing ease and and benefiting from that myself. Ah, Thank you. I'm not going to repeat that one, but thank you anyway. (laughs) Lovely. So you might notice as you hear these different examples and you tune into your own, how does the body and the heart feel and the mind? I'm guessing, sense of warmth, of openness, of spaciousness. So it's powerful to let that in. And yet in the way that Mudita was traditionally taught, we We're told to not include ourselves, which is kind of strange. Traditionally, Mudita is taught for people, other people's happiness, other people's good fortune. But that is a later development in the teachings, and in the teachings offered from the time of the Buddha, the instruction was simply, quote, to abide, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So abundant, exalted, immeasurable, no holds barred. We can really let ourselves abide with a heart-mind imbued with gladness. And just notice how that affects the practice. So I'd like to. There's more I will say about mudita. I'm hoping that we will get a chance to practice it in the coming days. And so I'll save some of this further instruction about mudita for then. I'd like to close now with a, another quote from Gil Fransdal, coming back to this power of aspiration and how cultivating sukha or happiness allows these aspirations to manifest quite naturally. He says, "...Buddhism recognizes many beautiful aspirations, including wishes of goodwill and kindness for others and the desire for happiness and other wholesome qualities of mind for ourselves. Central to Buddhist practice is the aspiration for liberation." and for the alleviation of the suffering of others. However, Buddhism does not require us to desire either of these. When the heart is open and relaxed, these wishes often naturally bubble up. Both aspirations can flow through us without egotism or craving. They can seem so natural that they appear impersonal. Just as water flows downhill, so the unimpeded heart flows to freedom and service. The healthy desire for freedom and compassion can flow like a mighty river that finds its rest in reaching the vast ocean. So may we all experience the unimpeded heart of sukha, of ease, well-being, happiness and freedom so that our lives might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May we know peace. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.